1: Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Amazon Legends. Today, I have a lifelong entrepreneur, Nathan Hirsch. And Nathan and I met several years ago. He was running at the time uh, the company he founded, FreeUp. And he's been an Amazon seller. He started FreeUp and sold it. And now he's running a service called Ecom Balance who is a bookkeeping service for e-commerce companies, because it's a whole different approach. But um, what Nathan really knows very well is how to maximize the value of your company. And he does that by doing something that everybody finds boring. (laughs) And, uh, And he turns it into fun. So... So with that Nathan uh, welcome to the show so uh, tell us a little bit about what it is that you do very well and now you made a business out of it and yeah, how that... maximize how does it maximize but more important what happens if you don't do it well
0: Yeah, thank you. Thank you so much. Excited to be here and and good to connect again. I mean, I've been an entrepreneur my whole life. I've never had a a real job, quote unquote. Um, I started selling on Amazon back in college and I got in in the the early days, the wild, wild west of Amazon, 2008, 2009. um, and, And I was selling millions of dollars out of my college dorm room. I ended up selling over $25 million over a six, seven year period but I didn't know anything about business. I didn't know anything about bookkeeping. The only way that I knew I was making money was either a spreadsheet or by seeing money go into my bank account. And. I avoided bookkeeping like the plague, I would wait until the end of the year, I would take all my credit card statements, all my bank account statements, dump it on my accountant. he would spend two months doing my my taxes, we'd file it and then I'd repeat again the next year and the next year and the next year and I did that for for six, seven years and one of many reasons that that I didn't have a success long term on Amazon is I didn't know my, my monthly numbers. I had no idea what I was really making each month, what products were doing better than other products. And I couldn't make real business decisions based on my expenses or my payroll or anything like that because I was going off of a spreadsheet and I was just getting numbers at the end of every year instead of every month. So when I ended up starting Free FreeUp, I, my business partner and I, we realized that that was not the correct way to do bookkeeping. And we hired a, an internal bookkeeper from day one. And even before we were making money, the month would end, we would get a report at the end of every month within 10 days telling us our, our revenue, our expenses, a breakdown of fixed prices versus hourly. Free up was a marketplace for freelancers or is a marketplace for freelancers. But we were able to make decisions based on real numbers every single month. And that helped us scale. And we scaled way faster. Within a year, within two years, we were bigger than my, my Amazon business ever was and we got it to to eight figures, and we were acquired in four years by by one of our customers. And one of the reasons we were able to be acquired was going through due diligence. We had immaculate books going all the way back to day one of our company, and every single question that the buyers asked us during the initial phone calls matched point-on-point with exactly what was in our books because we knew our numbers really well. We had looked at every monthly report since day one. So when we sold free up and we were kind of thinking, what, what adventure do we get into next? Well, what can we tackle? What can we build? Cause, cause we're entrepreneurs. The bookkeeping industry really intrigued us because We interviewed over 150 e-commerce sellers, and a lot of them were either doing it the way that that I used to do it, or they didn't really understand their numbers, or their bookkeepers didn't really understand e-commerce. So that's kind of a a short version of how I got to where I am today, but it's been a lot of fun helping businesses really understand their numbers, have clean books, have books that meet what I consider e-commerce standards, Um, and yeah, that's kind of my new venture.
1: Well, you know, you, you just hit the nail in the head for the one major deficiency that i see in small business owners because they do exactly what you've done at the beginning where they don't really they don't they find bookkeeping boring they don't they actually they find numbers boring and overwhelming and and frustrating so uh, they say oh you know i ask my clients you know how do you get your numbers? Well, we 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 look to our CPA. So this is the number one mistake when somebody says CPA for their numbers. Forget it, because the CPAs are designed to do one thing and one thing only, and that is to prepare tax returns. So the amount of money that they can make depends on how many tax returns they prepare, unless like they are on a bigger job, which they are not. So uh, so you do the math how do you prepare the maximum number of tax returns by spending the smallest amount of time on them, right? So how are you going to know your numbers as a business owner, where numbers matter for your decision making, by looking to someone who doesn't really care about your numbers, but just your taxes, because that's all they need to do. And they want to make sure, of course, I'm not suggesting that they just pull numbers out of hat, but they try to make sense of what you have so that they can file a tax return that they can defend. But it doesn't give you your business performance, right?
0: Right. And, and I have a great CPA. His name's Elliot. I've worked with him for 10 years. He helped me sell free up. He's, he's incredible. I recommend him to all our clients because we don't do tax but his firm is not set up to do monthly bookkeeping. They're, they're not designed to get it done quickly at the end of every month. They also have busy seasons. Like right now, we're, we're recording this or around the end of March. This is their busy season. They're trying to get tax returns done. Like you said, they don't have time for the monthly book. Same thing in October, where a lot of people are trying to get end of year numbers. They're focused on, on certain corporate filings. So there, there are some firms that do bookkeeping and tax um, very well together, but most CPAs, most tax firms are just set up for the tax side and there's also some benefit of having two different parties one party focusing on your books and your monthly books and the setup that you can actually read as an entrepreneur and someone else being able to to go through that proof it set it up for taxes give feedback and then you really have a three-person team working together to get your books in a good place and i'll also add that I think being an entrepreneur, my business partner and I, we bring a unique perspective to the table because we're entrepreneurs first. We're not bookkeepers first. We're, we're good at hiring. We're great at processes. We have an all-star team of bookkeepers, but we know what entrepreneurs need to see. We know what entrepreneurs like. We know what they don't like when it comes to books. And you have to be able to understand your numbers and you need them presented to you in a way that you can really make business decisions on month in and month out.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I mean, uh, it's, it's, it's financial performance data is very different than the, the financial data that goes on your tax return. So, that is a whole different activity, so to speak. And frankly, it takes a different kind of skill set because it's more about analysis and structuring and, 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 and so on and so forth. So, so, now tell us about why this is even more important for e commerce companies.
0: Yeah, I mean, e-commerce sellers are very complex businesses. I mean, you you've got you could have be selling on different Amazon marketplaces, Japan, UK, whatever, you could be on Walmart and Amazon and Jet and all these different places. Then on top of that, you could be selling different brands, different products within those brands, and you really want to make sure that you're spending your time, your money, your resources in the right places, we've all kind of heard of the 80-20 rule what, when you're an entrepreneur and, and that can really get messed up when you don't understand your numbers because you see Amazon depositing money into your bank account each month, but you might, be, you might have five products and four of them you're breaking even on and one of them you're crushing it and you're making all that money and you don't know that because your bookkeeping is not segmented. A a lot of entrepreneurs have that that shiny object syndrome where, oh, I can get my products on Amazon UK or Japan, or, or I can go on Walmart, but then they don't realize what is actually making money and there's kind of a balance between diversifying so you don't have all your eggs in one basket and chasing that shiny object syndrome where you're not focusing on what really makes you money. Inventory also plays a a big role in that. I mean, one of the biggest mistakes, I was talking to a a friend of mine, Joe Valley, uh, who works at Choirlight or is part of Quiet Light. I think he's one of the founders or or higher up there. Um, And and he was telling me one of the biggest mistakes he sees is, is e commerce sellers doing their books on a cash basis. And what happens when you do that is you buy. $50,000 worth of inventory. And that all shows up in March. And then your, your March looks like you lost money. And then the next few months looks like you make money, but you really have to do it on an accrual basis where you're showing money going in and out, but not necessarily at the time it leaves your bank account more on when you've actually made the agreement to send the money or receive the money. And that's going to show you what you're actually making each month, not just where the cash is flowing, which is a completely different idea. And most businesses When you go to sell them, you're not going to get as high of a valuation if you're doing it on a cash basis opposed to an accrual.
1: Okay, so this is a very uh, important point. So, but unfortunately, as soon as you start using words like cash basis, accrual basis, people just that you you've lost them already, right? Right. (laughs) So. for the benefit of the the listeners so let's let's talk about this uh, and, and break it really dumb it down and and break it down to individual pieces so i always ask this question so when i work with my clients one of the first things that i look at is what are the systems that they are using and how the systems are set up and specifically about inventory account and i ask how do you do it so so very simple. I ask, okay, let's say that you place the purchase order and the purchase order came in this month and it's $50,000 worth. How much money have you made? How much money have you lost? Say, I haven't made any money. Have you lost money? No. So the buying the inventory is not a cost. Okay, so how do you book that into your uh, your system, Your into your books? Well, it's a purchase. Well, it's a cost. So now the books will show as a cost. So that means that as soon as I hear that, I know they are set up wrong. Because when you buy inventory, that's an asset. So it has to go on your balance sheet. So let's say that you buy inventory and let's say that it's some unique product that nobody else has and you pay $50,000 for it. And the, the day after you bought it and paid for it, Somebody came and said, "I'm going to write you a check for $100,000 dollars. Sell me that inventory." Until that point, you've got no losses, no income, no nothing, and you've got somebody so he's basically buying your assets at that point, right? So it's, it's all about the setup. So when you say accrual basis, you are actually talking about two things. One is account for your inventory in the right way as an asset and also any expenses that you may incur but you haven't yet paid the bill also put them on your books because when you have accrual basis you are showing your true liabilities your true expenses therefore will show up and then at the same time you can plan for it but if you do it on cash basis they're not going to show up anywhere until you actually write the check. Right. Which is right. a whole different thing. So, uh, it's, it's a very fine point for, for us when we talk about it, you know, we, we know what we're talking about, but for an average, because it's so easy to start a business, but it's a whole different ball game to run it and then manage your numbers. Right.
0: Absolutely. I mean, a simple way to, to think about it. If you, if you own a lemonade stand and you buy cups, if you're doing cash basis, the second you swipe your credit card and it goes on your credit card, it goes on your books. Well, if you're doing accrual, maybe you have a vendor that you're getting cups, but you're, you don't have to pay them for 90 days. Let's say you're on net 90 terms, but even though you haven't paid them yet, it still goes on your books because you've agreed to that purchase. So that's kind of how I look at it. And the other thing to keep in mind is the balance sheet becomes incredibly important when you're an e-commerce seller for for other companies like, like FreeUp. The balance sheet was not important at all. I mean, we're, we're getting paid before we pay the freelancers. There's no inventory. There's no office. There's no real assets. Balance sheet was not an important part of selling the company. And we could even get away with doing the books on a cash basis because we're getting paid quickly from clients. We're paying freelancers pretty quickly afterwards. There, there's no net 30 or 90 or 60 terms or anything like that. e-commerce of businesses are not set up that way. Um, And they need to be on that accrual basis. And they need to make sure that they're keeping their balance sheet updated. One of the biggest things that that we do, even if we don't, let's say someone comes to us, even if they don't want us to go back and, and redo their 2020, 2021 books, we need to fix up their balance sheet to make sure it's at a good starting point for 2022 going forward, because the balance sheet is incredibly important.
1: Yeah, and so this is another thing that I get hung up on. So, and I've actually seen this with a client. So what happens is they keep them, the reality is everybody keeps their books in some shape or form. They're posting entries, right? Because they need to write checks. Of course, they don't want to write checks by hand. They want it to come out of the computer. So they post the bills. So, so people, people keep their books in some shape or form. Not necessarily accurately, but there there is something there. And then they hand over everything to their CPA. The CPA prepares the tax return. So now here is the thing that goes wrong. Whatever the CPA declares, he makes adjustments. He makes the the year-end adjustments at best. At worst, he fixes a lot of things that were posted incorrectly. For example, you may have posted inventory to cost, cost of goods sold, but he'll take it out and then show it as inventory and things like that. So he makes these adjustments. So then the tax return gets filed. Everything is great. But if those adjustments are not posted to your books, in other words, your books are not fixed, and you simply continue running the same set of books over and over and over, You'll keep declaring the same broken numbers. And of course, your CPA is not going to know. And he's going to declare the same thing. And I've seen uh, with a client, they had actually declared sales tax over and over and over, even though it wasn't there. You know, they weren't collecting as much because they never fixed it. So your tax return adjustments must be posted to the books. And that's what you're talking about. If you don't want us to fix the, tw- you still have to fix the, the at least the current year's opening balance on your books must match whatever was declared on the tax return, right?
0: Absolutely, and we we get into conversation with clients all the time. Where we're like, "Oh, why can't you just start January two thousand one go or two thousand two go forward?" And we try to explain to them like, "We have to make these changes. We have to fix this up. Um, it, it, you're going to benefit from it. From, from da- you're going to benefit from it down the line. It's only going to hurt you if we don't do that." So it, it's a great point. It's also a good point of why your accountant and your bookkeeper should communicate. And it's also a good point where. Even if, you, even if you're only using a bookkeeper for your books, you should make sure that bookkeeper has some tax experience. Like our, our head bookkeeper probably could file most of our clients' taxes, even though they don't, but it helps them from a bookkeeping side, make sure the books stay up to date. And it also helps them have intelligent conversations with the accountants that are preparing the taxes.
1: Yeah. I mean, also, I mean, this is really... Business owners, even though they don't understand numbers, they understand profit and loss very well. So they are like a hope. They are watching their numbers in terms of profit and loss, but they never understand the balance sheet anywhere near. They understand profit and loss. So they just end up with a bunch of uh, balances on balance sheet, on items, on on, uh, line items that really have no basis for it. So what happens is by the time you have to clean up the balance sheet, you have to write them all off. And then suddenly that becomes a huge loss or a huge income or whatever the case may be. And they say, Oh, this is where did this come from? But there is, you know, numbers are not going to disappear. So my point is all this at the end of the day, comes down to the value of your business. Isn't it? If you have a broken balance sheet, and they are all over the place whoever is writing you the check is not going to look at your pnl only they're going to look at more your balance sheet because balance sheet shows your liability long term short term any assets you have so uh, tell us a little bit about the impact of this in the valuation of your business yeah, I mean,
0: we we live in the day uh, and age of aggregators, right? All these aggregators are buying up e-commerce companies and they're looking for deals. They're, they're, they either won't touch businesses that don't have clean books or they're going to try to use those books that are not clean to get the best deal possible for them. And we actually get sent a good amount of referrals from aggregators saying, hey, we want to buy this business, but we won't touch it unless you go back and fix the books for the past three years. And then that seller ends up with a large bill. One way or another, you're going to have to pay for for bookkeeping. My advice is to just do it right from day one. If you're behind, pay to get it caught up. It's going to be way worse if you have to do that last minute. And it it all affects your evaluation. There's a trust factor too. I mean, I mentioned when we went and sold free up, When they're asking us questions on the phone and then it matches what they see when they get to due diligence and it goes into our numbers, that's a big trust factor. That's the kind of thing that that helps you sell a company. When you say something on the phone and then they start digging into the numbers and realize, hey, this doesn't make sense. This isn't exactly what they told me that's going to hurt your ability to get a deal or at the very least delay how long it takes to get a deal. And I kind of mentioned, if you're doing it cash basis and not accrual, that's going to affect your multiple. And like you said, they're going to look at the balance sheet, even if you don't like the balance sheet and you just want to look at the PL, there that anyone buying your company is going to look at it. So you need to make sure that's been kept up to date.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, this is, this is so critical as yet, you know, it's, it's just so hard. It's, it's like, you know they, they say that oh they should teach personal finances in school because a lot of schools yeah a lot of uh, kids grow up not knowing how to you know reconcile their bank account so it's like that <laughs> there should be some kind of a requirement for business owners to understand balance sheets and and pnl together not just you know how much money i made because life is all about building value and the value you build does not show up on the balance, on the profit and loss account. It shows up on the balance sheet because every year it's called retained earnings, right? It gets transferred, it gets transferred and you're building up and that is the value in the end you're cashing in on. And as yet, people just don't seem to understand. So let's talk about, uh, you said, they should start from day one. So what is the right way for an Amazon seller to start Correctly from day one. And let's talk about FBA and FBM because it changes things, right?
0: It does. I mean, here are your options, right? You can hire a CPA to do your taxes and your books, which we already talked about, or a firm that does bookkeeping and tax work. Maybe they have separate departments. You can hire a full time employee to do your bookkeeping, which most sellers aren't ready for on day one you can hire a a virtual assistant to do your bookkeeping, which could be good, could be bad. It's something you just need to be careful about. And I would argue that the less you know about bookkeeping, the less you should hire a virtual assistant to do your bookkeeping and the more you should pay for bookkeeping. Or you can hire a service like Econ Balance, and there's other ones out there, um, to just handle your bookkeeping month to month. Um, And they're also there to answer questions and support you in any way. So, you should not be doing your own books as an entrepreneur for for really two reasons one it's not a good use of your time like any time that you're spending doing your books is time that you should be spending growing your business doing sales doing marketing finding new products getting on new marketplaces whatever it is i, I there almost every entrepreneur that has had any success is not spending 20 hours a month doing their bookkeeping second of all you're probably not going to do it correctly. Most entrepreneurs are not CPAs. They're not bookkeepers. They can watch some YouTube videos, take some courses on doing bookkeeping, but they're probably not going to do it right at the end of the day. And it's probably just going to have to get redone later. I know I spent so much time with my Amazon business trying to do the books myself in year one, two, and three. And then I just had to pay afterwards for someone to redo all that work because I didn't really know what I was doing back in in 2000. 10, 11, as a college kid running my first business. And you can learn over time and you can get a little bit better, but it's not a good use of your time. So get in the mentality that someone else besides you should be doing your bookkeeping and then look at what those different options are. I already went through them, the the full-time employee, the VA, the service, the the bookkeeper, the accountant, all of those, and decide what makes sense for my, my budget. You can do some price shopping, but figure out how do I get it so the month ends And within 10, 15 days, I get all the reports I need day in and day out. If you have a bookkeeper that's constantly falling behind, they're they're doing it every quarter, they're only doing the end of the year, whatever it is, that's not going to do it for you. You need to be able to make decisions month in and month out. And one of the first things you should set up in every business is who's going to do my bookkeeping and how am I going to get these reports on time every single month so that I can make decisions month in and month out.
1: So- this is something that that i've come across uh, a couple of times a lot of the times people don't understand business owners don't understand numbers and they need help so how do they what is the best way to identify who is actually knowledgeable about the subject because you hired the wrong person, because I've seen these people. They said, you know, we, we kept hiring people, and they would stay a few months, and then they would leave. And they never knew. And then I would come in the, in the picture late in the game, and I would find that they've done so many things wrong, and basically they had no idea what they were doing. So there is a lot of pretend bookkeepers pretend services out there so how do you know the right ones and and pick pick the good ones
0: yeah i mean there's reviews and there's referrals that's one way my personal favorite way is to get your accountant get your cpa to proof your bookkeepers work if i'm a new seller and you've got that cpa hire a bookkeeper have them do a month or two of work pay your accountant to review the stuff and give the feedback. You can also hire higher level bookkeeper consultants, maybe you have a friend higher up. Um, But another tip is just avoid anyone that doesn't know e-commerce. There might be bookkeepers that have been doing bookkeeping for 10 years and they have a lot of experience, but if they've never done e-commerce or you're their first e-commerce client, you don't have time for that. You don't have time to teach them e-commerce. It's a whole different ballgame when it comes to bookkeeping. So what you need to do as an entrepreneur is you can't avoid numbers completely, but you also don't need to learn how to do bookkeeping. There's an in-between. You need to be able to look at a PL, and l look at a balance sheet, look at a cash flow and look for red flags. Even though back in the day I didn't know bookkeeping, I could still look at a PL and l and say, hey, this number doesn't make sense or hey, this is a red flag. And that's another way to vet your bookkeeping. Spend time learning how to read a PL, read a balance sheet, read a cash flow without actually having to do it, along with using your CPA to vet any new bookkeepers that you're adding on.
1: So the, the other things, share with us if you can, because a lot of the, the, the conventional people will advocate doing things manual because they're idea is, well, I know exactly where things go. So that's why I want to do it myself. But as you know, e-commerce means volume, high volume means automation. So therefore, a lot of the bookkeeping entries need to be made in an automated manner through systems. So can you share with us some uh, examples of what is best to automate in your bookkeeping and what is best To do manually even though it's possible to automate and what are things that there is no automation you have to do manually religiously on regular basis
0: yeah if you're a smaller seller you might be able to have a bookkeeper that does most of it manually and get away with it for a little bit until you scale one of the first things we automate for all our clients is using a tool called a2x and that brings in all amazon sales and really organizes the fees. Amazon reports are not great. They can be different for every single seller and every single marketplace. It can be very tough to, to realize what you're actually making. And like you and I talked about, most sellers make the mistake of just grabbing what's deposited into their bank account and putting that into their books. And that's not the correct way to do it. You want to have total sales minus Amazon fees, and then the net um, actually put into your book. So that's one of the first things you automate. If you hire a bookkeeper and they're doing Amazon reports or Walmart reports or whatever it is manually, um, that's a red flag, unless you're super small or have a, a super simple business. Now, expenses and stuff, the, the way that we like to do it is we like to do a, a run through to really get to understand some, understand someone's business because you might get in there and there's some transactions that aren't labeled properly or you have some questions about what stuff is, but most businesses, they end up making 90% of the same transactions month in and month out. And then you can start to automate, hey, we got these transactions, but we know from the past eight months that this transaction is this. So it's just kind of a combination of manual and automation there. But the automation usually comes on that, that sales side. And then inventory can be um, pretty complicated as well, just depending on how you want to set it up. We have two ways you can do it. One, if you're using a tool like Inventory Labs or, or whatever it is, and you're providing us cost of goods we'll just plug that into your books every single month or we can do a cost of goods averaging to average it out over a period of time which is another way it's kind of the the shortcut version that's still gap approved and still helps you understand your numbers but doesn't require you doing intense inventory management that not every single seller needs to do
1: yeah so the inventory accounting is a whole different ball game so you have two things in play first of all When you make a purchase and the inventory is is delivered to you, that needs to go on your balance sheet. And then every time you sell an item, the, the value of the inventory must be transferred from your balance sheet into your cost of goods sold. So what happens if your cost is changing, right? So if you bought 100 pieces at $10 and then another 100 pieces at $12, what is the cost of your sale? So so until the first hundred is sold, obviously it has to be done at hundred, uh, $10. So that's what you're referring to as averaging out or, you know, doing it. Uh, tell us a little, a little bit about how you handle that part.
0: Yeah. And this is kind of borderline of why I hire very good bookkeepers to, to kind of help this part of it. I mean, we, we have we have clients who have very complex inventory systems and we have, we have clients who do print on demand, which makes it even more complex because then they've got all these different vendors and they're buying one thing and then it's getting shipped to another place and then it's getting customized and then it's getting sent to Amazon and then it's getting sold there. So they, the inventory can be as simple as just averaging out. Like you said, if you've got 10 and 12 and and then maybe you're selling the 10 first or you're just averaging it out or it can be very complex where you need that inventory labs or, or different software or some people use spreadsheet to get it done. Um, and then it just depends on how good your system is. And if you already have a good system, we're not trying to go in and break it. We're going to go in and either get the numbers from you each month, or we can take it over if it's already set up. Or if you don't have a good system, that's usually when we refer to that cost of goods averaging, because you're still going to get a very accurate picture of what you're making every single month and your balance sheet and everything is going to be correct. Um, but you're not going through that that complex phase of what I would consider the next level of inventory.
1: Yeah. So, really, Nathan, what I'm hearing at the end of the day from you is doesn't matter whether it's e-commerce business, but if it's e-commerce, especially Amazon, you have to do this for every business. You can't just come up with a business idea and then start shifting merchandise. You have to think about how am I going to account for this? How are we going to treat this event and that event on the books? Because ultimately that's gonna maximize the amount of check that somebody is gonna write you for your business, right? You have to think about it ahead of time before doing things.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, every entrepreneur, you gotta have a lawyer, you gotta have an accountant, you gotta have a bookkeeper. I mean, those are kind of the the three basic things and you gotta spend time upfront getting your system set up. Something like inventory can get really messy very quickly. And if you have to go back and figure out a year worth of inventory, a year worth of cost of goods sold on different platforms over a long period of time, that can get very costly, very time consuming. It can pull you away from what you should be doing. And it's always faster to just get it set up right from day one. Even if it takes hours upfront, it's way better than trying to fix it later on.
1: Yeah, exactly. And also, you know, these. Let's say that you are fortunate enough for somebody to be interested in acquiring (coughs) your business. That's a process, right? It takes it takes time. They're gonna go through your books. They're gonna go through your operation. They're doing their due diligence, and it's already a, a fairly arduous process. And by having books that are not really well organized and clean you just make it even worse. And the whole thing takes longer. And you may lose them in the process because they lose their trust, as you mentioned earlier, right?
0: Our due diligence lasted six months. Part of that wasn't anyone's fault. Part of it was lawyers taking a long time to kind of go back and forth. But that's with immaculate books. Our books could not have been cleaner. And it was stressful. It was long Keep in mind while you're going through due diligence, you may or may not sell the company. The buyer could drop out of the last second and you don't want to neglect your business for six months. So while we're going through due diligence, we're also trying to run this business, grow this business. We might be going back to this business and continuing to run it if we don't sell it. So. That, that becomes a nightmare if your books are, are a mess. And if you have to pay a bookkeeping firm to, to redo your past two years of books, it's not like that bookkeeping firm is going to drop everything and get your books done in a week. That could be a month, two month, three month process. So to do, due diligence is already a long process not to mention when you're waiting on a third party to get that stuff done even though they might be working as hard as efficiently as possible and there's a lot of back and forth in there as well if we're redoing someone's books for the past year and it's a mess there's points where we have to say hey let's go to the owner of the business and figure out what these transactions are or why they did it this way then we can get back to work so hey due diligence can be stressful it can be long the way to make it easier is to have clean booked from the beginning and not wait until the last minute to get everything fixed up
1: yeah yeah and uh, if you haven't started the right way at the beginning the sooner you get it cleaned up the cheaper it's going to be for you in the long run right
0: Absolutely. Um, Having clean books makes everything better. And remember, even if you don't sell your business, the main goal of, of the bookkeeping from your side as an entrepreneur is to make good business decisions every single month. Should you hire more people? Should you let someone go? Should you expand to other marketplaces? Should you focus on making your current products profitable? Should you buy more inventory? Should you maybe make a smaller inventory purchase? You can't make these decisions just by a spreadsheet or just by, um, by looking at the money going to your bank account or by just looking at your tax return at the end of the year. You need to be able to make those decisions month in and month out and make them quickly.
1: Yeah, exactly. Now, uh, something you said about hiring, firing, uh, is a good segue to my next question. So, in your experience dealing with e-commerce companies and Amazon sellers in particular, what is the makeup of a good team? And and and, and describe to me the roles. You know, what should people absolutely make room for? mentally prepare themselves that I'm going to have somebody for these roles. So what is that make up and what does it take to be successful?
0: Yeah, great question. I, so I actually own another company called Outsource School, which teaches our hiring processes. And it's, it's really the exact process we use to hire people at all our businesses. It's something that we built seven years ago, and we've been using it ever since to hire all-star people. Um, but in terms of the setup, I mean, think of the different teams that, that you have. You've got a, a marketing team that that person might handle PPC. You've got a, an operations team. Those people are filling orders. You've got your your bookkeepers, your lawyers, your accountants, which are kind of like a, a separate thing off to the side. And then you've got that, that CEO or, or that person who's running it up above them. And the goal is to make all those teams communicate and work together in the same process. The the person who's listing the products should be talking to the PPC person. The the customer service reps who's dealing with the customer issues should be talking to the operations manager. So something along those lines of breaking it down. So you've got the marketing, the operations, the customer service with someone above managing all of them. That's the, the, the most simple version of it. And then you can kind of streamline it down where, Hey, you've got someone doing listing. You've got someone doing graphic design. You've got someone doing videos. Well, what I like to do, especially if you're a smaller seller and you're not doing eight figures, is all the creatives, you you want to build a Rolodex of creatives that you can go to. You don't every time you have a graph design project or or you need a, a listing being written, you don't wanna have to go higher on the spot. You wanna have three or four listers, two or three graph designers, two or three video editors. They might have other clients but whenever you have work you've got these people that you've already worked with they trust you that you can go to and then they'll deliver the work to whoever is putting the final final touches on that listing so figure out what those main full-time roles are and then also create a rolodex of reliable freelancers you can go to for different projects that you can use in multiple businesses multiple brands the same video editors we're using in econ balance we also used it outsource school we also use it used it free up and you can actually bring them from business to business
1: so in your experience what are certain roles that are best to be outsourced rather than hire a full-time in-house person?
0: Yeah, good question. Hey, keep in mind, I ran a dropshipping business. So anything that was communicating with suppliers, anything that was customer service, anything that was actually filling orders and tracking orders and making sure they were delivered, all of that we outsourced to the Philippines. Then you've got the freelancers, the creatives. Those could be US or US or non-US, but those are more freelancers. They're not full-time and exclusive to you. Where the customer service reps, it takes a long time to train someone in customer service. So those are people are full-time, they're exclusive to us. Whereas that lister or that graphic designer, they might have other clients. Same thing with an operations manager, someone who's actually managing the Amazon account. You want that person full time and exclusive to you. And then with marketing, you've got different options. You can hire a PPC agency. You can hire a full time marketing person internal. That's not something I would necessarily outsource to the Philippines. Although there are some great hires out there if you spend the time to, to really vet that.
1: I see. And the financial management.
0: So we're, keep in mind, Connor and I are very good at outsourcing. So with FreeUp, we, we hired a, a bookkeeper in the Philippines who is awesome. For, for most people, that, that's not sustainable or that's not something they can do. So your bookkeeper, your lawyer, and your accountant are usually U.S.-based.
1: U.S.-based. Okay. So um, so tell us a little bit about what, seeing the e-commerce business from numbers standpoint. Tell us a little bit about uh, what you see as the opportunities in the future in, in e-commerce companies. And also what are the challenges that come with it?
0: Yeah. I mean, we, we live in the day and age of businesses being bought by aggregators and they're looking for brands. I think that the, the The days of the wild, wild west of Amazon where you can list anything and just sell it for a long period of time are over. There are some things you can do to to make some money quick, but I would argue those are not scalable. What you need to focus on is how can you actually build a brand? How can you actually build something that's going to be around in 5, 10, 15 years that actually has a good sustainable profit margin that can handle supply chain issues, that can handle Amazon fees being raised, raised or competitors coming in? A lot of these smaller margin businesses struggle in times of crisis or times of change. So that's something to keep in mind where the, the 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 companies that survive now are really focused on building a brand, having a presence, maybe outside of Amazon, having email lists that they can control, but also having the margins that can support them if things go wrong. And, and the, I guess the other thing is just cash flow. Cash flow is king when you're an e-commerce seller. A lot of e-commerce sellers go out of business, not because they're not profitable, but because they're not managing their cash properly we have a, a client at Econ Balance who's very seasonal. During the summer, they, they sell a lot to college students. So during the summer, when colleges are out, they, they they really don't make that much money, even though they're they're above an eight-figure business. So they need to make sure that they have a lot of cash on hand, and they project their cash flow out 12 weeks at a time, and they're within like $1,000 every single week going 12 weeks out. And they need to do that because they need to make sure that they're, they can pay their employees and not have to let them go in the middle of of the summer so to me those three things are incredibly important making sure you have a good profit margin make sure you're growing your brand and make sure you really understand your cash flow and have a good cash flow for your company
1: and what is a good margin
0: i mean if you can get to 40 to percent or above you're, you're killing it sometimes that can be unreal unreasonable but 25 to 35 percent would be at something to shoot for and if you fall in slowly below that you can still get by
1: uh, and when you say margin, define the margin.
0: Yeah, so that'd be net after fees, um, after paying people, all that. Um, but I don't know, you're, you're kind of the consultant in the space. So I'm curious what you see as well when it comes to margin and what's realistic. Because in my mind, like, like you got people who were making very high margins, and then supply chains came in, and, and all of a sudden, those high margins didn't look so good anymore. So what, what are you seeing?
1: Well, I break it down into buckets, So the first one is the gross margin. Gross margin is how much are you paying for the merchandise that you sell uh, as a percentage of the sale value? So if you're selling the item for $10, how much are you paying to buy the merchandise? This is the landed cost. It does not include Amazon fees or, or even credit card fees. It is just, you sold one piece, How much did it cost you to land here at your warehouse for the dollar that you're going to spend? So I like that to be around 20 to 30 percent. So in other words, for a hundred dollar sale, you spend no more than 20 to 30 dollars on the merchandise. Now comes the Amazon fees. That's 15 percent. And then you have your fulfillment fees. So what I like is I like that bucket, the fulfillment fees uh, bucket to be no more than 12 to 16% of the total sale value. So now you do the math. Uh, You made a $100 sale. You pay, let's say best case scenario, 20 bucks to the merchandise, 15 bucks to Amazon, Another say average 15%, another 15 bucks. So that's 15, 15, 30, plus 50. Already 50% spent before advertising. So I say, allow, if you are building uh, your own private label product line, you need to advertise, right? So I say, allow 20% of your sale on advertising. So now you are up to 70%. So now that leaves you with 30%. And then this is, you have the, uh, what do you call other incidentals like storage and bits and pieces. So that's 5%. So that's, that leaves you with 25%. So keep in mind, we started at 20% gross margin, which is very good. So if you're spending 40%, you've got 5% left. Right. So this, this, this basically brings you back to what you mentioned right at the beginning. You have to know your numbers in order to make the business decisions. If your money is, is being spread around like this across these multiple uh, ways that money gets consumed uh, out of every sale, you know, and you don't know what those numbers are, how can you even run your business? Now, here is the real danger that I always see. Let's say that you have 25% net, net, net margin. In other words, out of every $100 you spend, you putting tw- you bring in, in sales, you put 25 bucks in your pocket. And let's say you do $100,000 a month. So now you know that you are taking home 25 grand every month, every month, net, after everything. How much inventory are you carrying, right? If you're carrying three times your monthly sales, your monthly earnings, even though it may be healthy, may not be enough to finance the inventory. You have to keep buying.
0: Yeah. It's a great so, point.
1: Yeah. So that is the point that you were making. You may be profitable, but if you don't know your numbers, then how you how can you operate? You simply go out of business. So, that's what I say. Your biggest, and this is a, it's a liquidity ratio, you need to know how much net liquidity you're generating, net profit you're generating every month, and then how much inventory you're carrying at all times, at any one time. So if you've got $100,000 worth of inventory, it's going to take you four months just to make enough money to finance your, your inventory back yeah so I mean that is the killer to me what do you what what is your take on it
0: and no I, I completely agree I, I mean there, there's also other solutions whether it's getting investments or funding or using something like payability or getting Amazon loans or, or whatever it is but you have to manage your your cash flow like you said especially just depending on how much you're buying inventory and how often you're buying inventory
1: yeah yeah so um, so tell us a little bit about your uh, knowing you know you're dealing with so many amazon sellers what is one common complaint they have about amazon and in terms of amazon policies <laughs>
0: I mean, it keeps you on your toes, right? Like they can change things at a blink of an eye, whether it was a review fiasco that happened uh, towards the end of last year or changing fees or storage fees or, or whatever it is. I mean, competitors, hijack listings, all of that stuff. I mean, I've been selling Amazon since, or I've been in the Amazon space since since 2008. So I've seen it all. I've seen everything change kind of across the, the board there. Um, I, I, I think the, the, the real sellers, the, the people who are really crushing it, kind of know that amazon's changing and they're trying to stay five steps ahead of it they know what's going on in the space i mentioned they also might be diversifying um but they're also on they're using those tools to, to make sure they always have enough cash whether it's getting those inventory those amazon loans or using the the payability companies or whatever it is um yeah those are kind of the the common complaints i'm sure you've heard kind of the same ones
1: yeah yeah i mean the what I usually hear is that the, ch- the constant change uh, mm. that Amazon goes through is, is catches people off guard sometimes. But uh, the, the bottom line is you have to expect that Amazon is going to change the rules anytime and be on the lookout. You can't be uh, thinking that whatever you do once is going to continue. And also <laughs> their support. I hear that their support for sellers is pretty poor and And people complain about it.
0: I'll tell you my complaint. It blows my mind that Amazon still requires you to use a tool like A2X to really get sales numbers to QuickBooks. I I don't know. I don't understand how they haven't figured out a good way to get good sales data, good fees in a way that's compatible with QuickBooks or Xero to just get that to the seller and why it requires a third party in the middle to, to organize data.
1: Well, it's an ecosystem, right? So Amazon is also an ecosystem. So you have, that there is all kinds of things. They also, Amazon is one of the most secretive companies. They don't want to give you everything. So right. that's part of the way they qualify sellers. And I think they, they submitted a report to the Congress, uh, like um, X number of million sellers on the books, but, only a, a fraction of it is actually an active cell. A lot of people just drop out because it's a very complex platform. So, uh, anyway, uh, so Nathan, this is this is this is the kind of conversation that people don't find interesting, <laughs> but as yet it is so critical. And and you made it fun to listen to for me, and because you know you you you, you you've been through it yourself in terms of how it benefited you so so this was great so tell tell us a little bit about yourself and where do you live and what do you do outside of work and and uh, and also give us your contact information we'll put this on our website and also on our youtube channel uh, but uh, give us all the contact information how how people can reach you
0: yeah i live in denver colorado uh, my wife and i and two dogs and we actually recently became foster parents so it's kind of our way to to give back i think both of us are, are very fortunate that we had loving, caring parents. And although we didn't grow up rich or anything, we were either poor or middle class, um, depending on how, how you look at it. Um, we we kind of take for granted a little bit, just having food on the table, having a roof, having that really great parents. And I, it's kind of our way to give back to, to kids that um, haven't had those same opportunities and hopefully help them um, in, in the long term. Anyone that wants to get in contact with me, Nathan Hirsch, you can find me on any social media channel. Check out Econ Balance. You can Submit a quick form to get a quote on your company. Uh, You can also go to outsourceschool.com and and check out my hiring process.
1: Great. Thank you, Nathan. This was was great. So everybody, uh, this brings us to the end of another episode. And you've heard it all. You got to know your numbers. If you want those fat checks being written for your business, you got to know your numbers and keep your books in order. And ideally start from day one. And thank you again. And I'll see you next time.
0: Thank you. Thank you for tuning in to today's episode. Be sure and subscribe, rate, and review our show. And be sure and share an episode with a friend. And thank you so much for being with us today. We'll see you next week here on Amazon
1: Legends.